welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. All right, you Global Dispatches podcast listener, do you know how many people are in the world right now? The answer is 7.6 billion, and that answer is contained in the United Nations' latest estimates on global demographic trends, released just moments ago. That data point and much more are contained in a report called World Population Prospects, the 2017 Revision. And I must say this report contains all sorts of facts and figures that are both interesting on their own, but also extremely consequential to understanding the future of our species in a very literal sense. On the line with me to talk about the world's population is John Wilmoth, Director of the Population Division at the UN's Department of Economic and Social Affairs. We discuss the trajectory of the world's population, including where the big population centers of the future will be. We also have a fascinating conversation about the relationship between contraception, child survival, and population growth, and why, from a policy perspective, one of the more useful things you can know is the age distribution of a population. That is, how old or how young a population is. And here, Europe and Africa represent two extremes that we discuss at length. I promise after listening to this interview, you will learn a lot about world demographics and why it matters. Before we begin, a big thank you to everyone who has left a review on iTunes. I so appreciate it. A big, big thank you to my premium subscribers who help support the show, sustain the show, help me keep bringing you episodes like this one. That's a little off the beaten track, but nonetheless, very important, very interesting stuff to know. And I think you'll be a smarter and more well-rounded individual after having listened to this episode about humans in the world. And now here is John Wilmoth. Enjoy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The world's population currently numbers nearly 7.6 billion people in mid-2017. And this has grown by about 1 billion people since 2005 or by 2 billion people since uh, 1993. So um, as most people are aware, the world's population has been growing very rapidly for the last um, 100 years, uh, and uh, increase, it continues to increase, and it will continue to increase um, throughout the rest of the current century. And we we project that uh, the world's population will reach a level of around 8.6 billion people in 2030, 
and continue growing to around 9.8 billion in 2050. And then the growth will continue, but it's gradually slowing down in the second half of the century and reaching a value of a little bit more than 11 billion people in 2100. Um, it, it seems, and perhaps I read this wrong, but the uh, rate of population growth is already decreasing uh, in 2015 compared to, say, 2005. Is that right? That's correct. In fact, the rate of global population growth has been decreasing since the early 1970s. It reached a peak around 1970. Um and has been falling ever since then. Even though, like, obviously, overall numbers are are increasing. What 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 is accounts for for that that slowdown that started in the nineteen seventies? Well, it's it's part of a process of demographic transition where uh, different populations uh, have have experienced a similar process of transition from uh, in the past having rather high rates of both fertility and mortality. Um, that's to say that people didn't live as long uh, and many children would die in childhood. And uh, to compensate for that, people had much larger families. And uh, so women would have six or seven children on average, and um, two or three of them might die before they reach adulthood. And, you know, others might die as adults. And uh, just in order to replace uh, the population from generation to generation, it was necessary to have a large number of uh, children per woman. Um, and uh, that's that was the way of the world for millennia, really. Uh, but sometime during the industrial uh, age, uh, we learned to control death, uh, especially premature death, death among children. Um, and And this then led to rapid population growth um, as uh, as people survived rather than dying as, as children survived uh, in much greater numbers to adulthood and then they would start having children themselves uh, and this just kind of multiplied the, the growth factor um, as they survived versus children and then through through the uh, reproductive period uh, so that's the, the the cause of the growth um, that we've observed in the last 100, 200 years uh, all over the world is 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 the decline of mortality. It's the the mastery of uh, of death. Humanity is winning. Uh, well, in in many ways, I, I often say population growth is a sign of great victory of mm -hmm. the of the human uh, species that we've learned to um, avoid premature mortality, and but that that has brought uh, all of this growth. And then over time, uh, populations came to, to realize, people, individuals and people collectively came to realize that it wasn't necessary to have such large families in this new context. Um, children weren't dying in childhood the way that they were in the past, and parents could observe that, and they could see that it really wasn't necessary to have six or seven children in order to have three or four surviving children, that you know, it was sufficient to have really the number that you want, um, <clears throat> because most of them, uh, you know, with a high probability, they're going to survive to adulthood. And then we came up with modern so, contraception, right? Well, yes, that, that happened too. So there was, I think, first the motivation to reduce uh, uh, family size uh, in, in, um, in the U.S. and in Europe. 
the the reduction of the fertility rate was achieved without modern contraception, um, hmm. really just by you know what we consider traditional methods of of contraception now, and meaning you know, some some early methods like condoms and diaphragms, but also um, through withdrawal and prior to ejaculation. That that was a common means of controlling fertility. It's not as reliable. We all know, and we teach uh, teenagers uh, don't rely on it, don't rely on that. But um, uh, on average, across populations, it, it can have quite an effect. And uh, so the birth rate was brought down in countries of Europe and North America, <clears throat> and that started already in the 19th century in the U.S. and in France. It, it was it, it took off in the early decades of the 19th century. So we're talking 1800s, 1810s, 20s. And in most other parts of Europe, uh, the decline of fertility started more toward the end of the 19th century, 1870s, 1880s. Um, and was, you know, the, this transition toward uh, longer life and uh, smaller families was largely complete in those countries by the 1930s. Uh, and uh, the birth rate was down around two and a half children per woman in the U.S. at that point, and uh, growth was slowing down at that point um, in the U.S. and in Europe. But the, the other parts of the world uh, began this transition much later. Uh, the reduction in mortality, uh, it started for some, in, in some parts of uh, Asia and Latin America, it, it, it was it was starting in the early part of the 20th century, but it really took off after the Second World War, um, and uh, the, the death rate was falling very rapidly after the Second World War in, in, in those parts of the world, and, and the world became much more aware of the issue of population growth as a result, because these large populations, especially in Asia, um, it was seen that they were growing much more rapidly because of the victory over death, as I was saying. And, and people became aware that um, this was leading to very rapid growth and it was going to lead to a rapid increase of, of the human population and the impact of the human population on the planet. And uh, people became much more interested then in uh, reducing the birth rate. And uh, this combined with the fact that uh, researchers were looking for convenient ways to control fertility and they were developing methods. And in, in 1960, the... Um, the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. approved the uh, the oral contraceptive pill, mm -hmm. and uh, so so really modern contraception dates from around 1960. But it's and, interesting that uh, that the U.S. the population had already stabilized before then, as you said earlier. That, yes, it, it had you know already by the 1930s it had the U.S. and and many countries most countries of Europe had reduced the fertility rate to a level that. If it were maintained at that level, uh, the population would stop growing. Um, but what happened also in those populations following the Second World War was, especially in the U.S., a big baby boom where fertility, the fertility rate went back up. And um, it got up to almost four children per woman in the U.S. in the late 1950s. And uh, so that then you know, stimulated growth again. So. <laughs> Uh, in the U.S., sometimes we confuse these two things. There was the historical decline of fertility that happened really before the 1930s. Then there was the baby boom and then hmm. the reduction of fertility following the baby boom, but, which was kind of a separate matter. Um, but uh, in the rest of the world, it's really been in the period since the 1960s and 1970s 
when this transition has been taking place, especially the, the reduction of fertility that's brought the reduction of growth uh, that we started out talking about. So where in the world are we seeing the most population growth? Uh, most of the growth in, in the future, in the coming decades, will take place in Africa, in the continent of Africa. Um, and uh, that's because it's, it's in that part of the world where this transition toward longer life and smaller families is, is the least advanced. Uh, it's, it's moving along. It's pretty clear that they're going through a similar transition, uh, but they're, they're at a more of an intermediate stage or even an early stage in some countries where there's been the increase of life expectancy, <clears throat> so more people surviving and therefore growing populations, but the reduction of fertility has been much more modest. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's taking place, but it's coming along a little bit more slowly than, than we had expected. I, I saw in your report uh, on, on life expectancy that in 2015, as compared <laughs> to 2005, life expectancy in Africa increased by like seven years? Yes. yes that's that's, that's astounding. Yes, it's a very rapid rate of increase. Uh, some of that is due to recovery from the AIDS epidemic that a lot of people in, in the 90s were being affected by that. And, and so some of the progress against AIDS, and, you know, so it was a, there was a period of very slow increase of life expectancy in Africa. And now, in some sense, the rapid increase in the more recent decade that you're referring to, that, that's recovery from the earlier ep epidemic. But... Um, but still, it's a rapid pace of increase overall, and it also represents a, a kind of a narrowing uh, to some to some extent of the differences in life expectancy across the different regions of the world. Um, it's uh, it's good news, I think, that some of the areas where life expectancy is lower are actually experiencing the most rapid increase, mm -hmm. closing the gap uh, at least somewhat between countries. There's still a big gap that remains between levels of life expectancy in Africa and North America. For example. Off the top of your head, can you cite those figures? Yeah, I, I can actually that, you know, in Africa today, it's around 60 years of average life expectancy and, and North America, considering just the U S and Canada uh, is mm -hmm. about 79. And, and those are the two extremes in terms of, and the way that we break up the world in terms of uh, major regions of the world, uh, Northern America, as we say, which is really the U S and Canada, has the highest life expectancy, um, and Africa has the lowest. And the difference is about 19 years. And, and I have to mention, obviously, within the region, uh, particularly in Africa, there, there's there's big variation. So, uh, is That's is correct. for example, like most of the African population growth due to like Nigeria, which I've heard a stat before that one in every six Africans is Nigerian. Well, Nigeria is it is the largest country on the continent uh, with respect to population, and it's increasing very rapidly. In fact, uh, it's increasing so rapidly that it's poised to overtake the U.S. as the, and become the third largest country in the world, um, possibly by 2050. Hmm. Um, but Africa is not the only country that's growing rapidly. There are several. Others that I would I would uh, I can look up that list for you while we're talking. I don't have that off the top of my head, but there are several that are growing quite rapidly. And in fact, uh, you can identify just nine countries in the world that account for um, fully half of all the world's population growth. 
And that's either because they're large countries and therefore large countries, of course, contribute more to the total. Like growth, India and China, Nigeria. Those yes. Countries, yeah. Yes. So India is in that group, but China actually isn't because the population growth has slowed down so hmm. much. But the United States is in that group just partly by size. Um, but, um, and a lot of that is an immigration effect that a lot of the growth of the U S population at this point is uh, due to immigration. Um, and, um, and so then that counts as part of the, you could argue about the definition here. You could say, well, the U S isn't really contributing that growth to the global population, but it gets counted that way because, um, the immigrants reside here. And, and I should say, I want to tease us for a, a question I want to ask you a little later uh, about migration to Europe, which your report has some really interesting data uh, on in terms of the relationship of migration to Europe and, and population growth in Europe. But before we get there, I do want to talk over a few other facts and, and figures in the report. One is on age distribution. Um, what does your report tell you about how old or young the population is in, in various parts of the world? How old or how young? Um, yes. Well, there, you know, in, in, in much of this story about the global population, it's, it's often the case that Africa is at one extreme and Europe is at the other. And certainly that's true in the case of the age distribution. And here I can give you the contrast. Uh, and it's really quite striking if I can just find the numbers here. I've kind of got them in my head, but I want to check them before I uh, so say them for you that, um, you know, at the global level, uh, population, uh, you know, in 1950 really looked like a pyramid with a, a very wide base at the bottom representing uh, children and youth. But, uh, you know, at the global level, that, that pyramid has kind of narrowed at the bottom, uh, as the, as the population of children and youth is, is not as large as it was in the past. And the population of adults and older people has, has, has grown larger and, and the, you know, the population across the world is kind of distributed much more evenly across the age range now than it was in the past. But the African population still looks much like uh, the world population did, say, back in 1950. It really, it still looks like a pyramid uh, if you arrange things uh, as is often done men on one side, women on the other, and then age going up the pyramid. So you have a, a lot more babies of both sexes uh, at the base of the pyramid and uh, tapering off at older ages. Um, so in, in, in uh, 2017, the current year, 60% uh, of the African population is under the age of 25. Uh, so that gives you an idea of uh, you know, the balance uh, and only 5% is above, um, is, is at age ages 60 or higher. Can, can, so I, that, can I ask, like, what are the, the implications of that, societal implications, policy implications of having such a large, not even young popula youth population, but like baby population, child population? Well, I mean, this does include youth as well. I'm mm -hmm. going all the way up to age 25 with that number of 60%. So it is a lot of children. It's a lot of young people. It's uh, you know young adults trying to get started in the labor force, um, and it, of course it has many implications, um, just in terms of the you know the, the requirements for providing education, and healthcare, and uh, ensuring that jobs are available uh, to this young population so that they uh, 
develop productively and contribute to society and instead of becoming distracted with um, discontent uh, over not being able to find a job or not being able to get educated. Uh, so it's, it's challenging to countries to accommodate these increasing numbers of children every year because population growth, uh, you know, when a population is growing at say 2% per year, what that means is that typically each successive uh, year, you have 2% more children being born. That's what drives the growth ultimately is the, the ever increasing number of births. Um, and the births are increasing because the number of um, adults of reproductive age is increasing. And so everything is kind of increasing by that, that percent. And, uh, you know, that, that compound, that's a little bit like compound interest when you think about, you know, applying 2% per year to something. It, it may not seem like much, but um, over 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that's, that's quite an increase. Uh, and that produces quite an increase. And all of the infrastructure that's necessary to support the raising of children, not just the raising by parents, but um, by the society. So mm -hmm. I mean the schools and the hospitals that are necessary. All of these have to expand at that rate as well. So you're going to need and like economic growth to keep up with population growth, basically. You need, you know, you need growth that's much more rapid. You need a, a, a pace of economic growth that, that exceeds the rate of population growth in order to increase mm -hmm. the income per capita. So it's always kind of a race against population growth. Uh, you know, it, it, these countries would be challenged, I think, in any situation, even with no population growth. They face the, you know, there's a desire to increase the standard of living of the population, to increase the number of children who are enrolled in school and who complete higher levels of schooling. Um, and there's a, a, a desire and a need to increase the health system and you know, improve access for the population that's there today. But then you add on top of it the, the fact that the number of people is increasing. So you just have to increase and build and expand uh, even faster than you would in, in, in the past it, without it, that growth. Do demographers identify like an ideal age distribution in a country or in a society? No. So there's Absolutely no, not. so there's no like way there, there's no sort of um, distribution of ages. That's more conducive to economic growth or general societal well-being than others. Well, that may be true, but it's not that we try to identify what that should be and, and suggest that that countries should aim for that. Mm -hmm. um, the, the reason is, I mean, there, there, there can be advantages to having a certain age distribution. Um, and and I'll, I'll try to I'll give an example in a few minutes. But the, 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 over, the, the bigger picture here is that pe uh, societies, governments don't really have a lot of control over these matters. Um, everyone agrees that um, better health and longer life is a good thing. And, and so if there's, a, if there's a cure for a disease, it's going to be adopted and people are going to survive and you're going to have more people as a result. Um, and uh, as far as fertility goes, there have been experiments in the past with population control, imposing uh, rules about how many children uh, can be born, uh, how many, each couple can have so many children. The one-child policy in China was an example of this, and there have been other countries that have um, experimented with such policies or implemented them very seriously. 
but you know, on the, at least on an international level and the discussions at the United Nations between governments on these topics, there's pretty wide agreement that um, that those policies should not be supported. That mm-hmm. um, that the focus should be on enabling people to have the number of children that they would like, and to space them out the way that they want, and uh, even the question of whether they should they should have children at all. That 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 these are matters of choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you know, all of the intergovernmental discussions at the UN have affirmed the, the, the right of women and men and couples to, to choose freely and responsibly the, the number of children that they may wish to have. So, you know, given that, if, if you accept that sort of philosophical approach, uh, which I think it's not just philosophical, it's an ethical approach to this issue, there's not a lot that governments can do to control the, the size of the population. The number of births that are going to happen next year uh, is not really in the control of governments. And, and so there's not really much point in, in trying to identify an hmm. optimal uh, population uh, profile, given that um, it's really a matter of individual choice or things that we don't have much control over. We do have some control around, you know, governments can influence population trends to a certain extent, but they're really quite limited in their ability to, to change. And so we try to emphasize that instead of thinking about controlling populations or, you know, affecting population trends, it's much more important to understand what's going on and to understand the long-term changes that are taking place and to adapt to them and to find ways, you know, to focus on policies that allow, uh, uh, the best possible outcomes mm-hmm. in a particular demographic situation. What was the the example that you were going to cite? Well, you know, so over the process uh, of, of demographic transition, over the course of demographic transition, where countries move from having you know, lar- uh, shorter lives and big families to having uh, longer lives and smaller families, uh, uh, there, there, are, there are about three stages of that. You know that the the first stage is when mortality falls, and that mostly affects children, and you have a lot more surviving children, and the population actually becomes much younger. And that's the, that's a really challenging period when you have just this basically swelling of the population of children because you've um, because you're keeping them alive. They're not dying as infants and children, and and you've just got a lot more children around to educate and. And that's, that's a challenging moment. But then as populations start to reduce fertility, they basically, you know, uh, reduce in the number of children. You reduce fertility and, you know, today and five years from now, you have a lot fewer five-year-olds than, than you would mm-hmm. have had otherwise if you reduce the birth rate. And uh, after about 20 years, you've got a much uh, smaller population uh, for ages 20 and below that, than you would have had if, if fertility, if the birth rate had stayed at a higher level. So it's in this, there's a particular moment in this transition where uh, you've reduced the number of children and young people, but you, what you have is a very large population at working ages. And there's kind of a sweet spot in here where you have... Uh, a, a relatively large population in the working age range and you've reduced the size of the child population and you don't yet have a lot of older people because, uh, you know, it's going to take a little time uh, for that big population of working ages to age into the older, uh, in, into the older age categories. 
uh, to where you start having this phenomenon of population aging that we talk about. Are there any countries that are in that sweet spot right now? Oh, several actually. Uh, several of Asia. I mean, China uh, has been, in, and that's you know part of what accounts for the the growth is is the, with the enormous reduction of fertility that they that they in, in, invoked with the uh, one child policy. Um, they created a situation in which they have a lot of people of working age. They have a lot of adults in the working age range, and and not as many kids to support as they would have had traditionally, and yet not yet having a really old population. Um, now they're moving toward the, the population aging phase where they start to have more and more older people. And then, then you start to face the challenge of supporting the older population, all the costs of old age pensions and healthcare and so forth. But there's kind of a moment in between when you've uh, sort of, by reducing the fertility rate or the birth rate in the population, you've kind of reduced dependency among children and you don't yet have this big uh, population of older people to support. And so the fraction of the population that's in the working ages uh, reaches a kind of historic peak hmm. uh, in that time period. And um, that's, that's considered, in some ways, a favorable age distribution. It's favorable to economic growth because you have a high percentage of workers uh, compared to uh, people in the age ranges where they typically are dependent on those people of working age. Before I let you go, I did want to talk about Europe, which is on the other end of that age distribution spectrum that you just yeah. described. So yeah. how, how old is, is Europe? I mean, it seems to uh, be kind of uh, suffering from the kind of the age pathologies that you just described of being a little too old, where you're going to have some pensions that might be overburdened in the very near future, if not already. Well, um, that's true for Europe, just like it's true for the U.S. and, and for Japan and some other countries. Um, but Europe, I mean, just to compare, for example, the situation in Africa, I said that, uh, you know, currently they have 60% below age 25 and only 5% above age 60. Uh, for Europe, those two groups are more or less equal in size. They're both around one quarter. So you have a quarter of the population uh, below age 25, and you have another quarter above age 60. And uh, that, you know, 25% of the population above age 60, uh, that's, that's new. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, of course, it's been several decades now that it's been in that situation. And it, 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 it continues to, to move in that direction, with, you know, it, it, although it will not go very much above that percentage in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's pretty much reached the aged the aged profile that we expect for all countries in the future, basically. I mean, what Europe looks like today in terms of its age distribution, that's very similar to what all countries should expect um, mm -hmm. in the long run. And, and it seems that one policy implication of that is that migration to Europe can uh, help reduce some of those burdens. And, and the report says something like 3 million people a year are moving to, to Europe. Is that enough? To um to to reduce that burden that 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 age that of of an olding of an aging population. Well, so migrants tend to be young, youthful, uh, compared to the populations where they are going. Um, they 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 tend to be concentrated among the you know, young adult ages. A typical migrant is somebody in their twenties, uh, you know, young workers. And uh, sometimes they have children, or they they start to have children. They start to bear children in the in the new country. So they contribute to making the population younger than it would be 
otherwise. So this is advantageous in some sense. It it slows down the process of population aging uh, if you have a certain amount of immigration going on. Um, it's a, it provides a kind of a counterweight to this upward shift in the age distribution. Uh, however, that being said, um, the the magnitude of these two effects is not uh, is not comparable. Um, you've got this process of population aging, which is driven by the long term change in 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 birth and death rates, and that's a very big force that's um, it's really unstoppable. Uh, and migration, international migration, in certain circumstances, yes, you can have a you know, uh, you can rejuvenate the population to a certain extent through international migration. Um, but if you consider levels of migration that have been known in the past or which seem to be possible for the future, um, there's no way that it will, you know, uh, equal, you know, that the effect of that, the rejuvenating effect of migration will never equal the uh, the aging effect that comes from the transition to uh, uh, lower birth and death rates. All right. So if you're so listening to it, this in Europe, have more children. Well, that's... But yeah, you, you as a UN official, of course, the... can't say this, as you said. It's a personal choice, obviously. <laughs> it's a personal choice. But I mean, uh, you know, fertility is really the the big factor in population dynamics. It's the thing that determines the growth rate and ultimately that determines the age distribution of the population. Uh, migration can have, you know, somewhat of an effect. It, to, it can attenuate that long-term tendency toward population aging. It can slow it down. It provides somewhat of a counterweight to it, but it's just not big enough in terms of the scale, the, the scale of migration that would be needed in order to really stop population aging in those countries is just so far off the charts that, you know, no one would consider it as a matter of serious policy. So, uh, we cannot count on immigration to somehow uh, deal with the issue of population aging. And I don't think we should see population aging as a, as a negative thing. Again, this is, this is the great victory of the human species over uh, premature death. That's, that's why populations are growing so much older. Um, of course, it, it required also reducing the birth rate, because if you, if you reduce the death rate and people live longer, but you keep having six or seven births per woman, then the population is just going to grow, 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 and you're going to have lots more young people, and it'll always be a very, you know, a, an age distribution that's skewed toward younger ages. You have to reduce the birth rate in order to get that new age profile with a older, an older age profile that we observe today. Uh -huh. But, you know, what we're, what really starts that off and what makes it possible is this um, victory over premature death. And, and so population aging is a, it's a success that should be celebrated and we should um, focus on finding ways to uh, allow older people to be more productive, to remain as, you know, participating members of society, to remain in the labor force. Uh, we should get rid of forced retirement uh, and allow people to continue working if they if they'd like to and and we should probably even raise the you know gradually raise or increase the 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 official retirement age the age at which people receive full benefits because you know people who are 65 today are much healthier than they were than were 65 year olds in the past and the people are 
you know, much more capable of continuing to work at that age. Yeah, t- try telling that to a 64 and a half year old who is ready to, to check out. Um, a lot of it's expectations. That's true. And, and, and you have to plan these things yeah. in advance. You have to announce it to people when they're much younger, yeah. that their retirement age is going to be higher than what their parents was. You know, in the, in the United States, the, uh, the, the increase in the official retirement age was announced uh, well in advance and it's going up by a month per year, uh, roughly over some time period. And, uh, you know, if you, if you map it out, it, it's, it's increasing from 65 to 67. And I just remember I figured out at some point that if you compare my father's cohort to mine, he was before the increase, you know, his, his, his official retirement age was 65. And then sometime in between when he was born and when I was born, uh, for those cohorts, it's going up to be 67. And, but it's something that, you know, I've known about already for quite a few years. And, you know, by the time I get there, <laughs> my, my retirement age, at least for, as far as the U.S. government is concerned, is, is 67. <clears throat> so if you announce it in advance, I think people can make that. They can adapt to that. But we should think about the increase of retirement, of the retirement age going more or less in parallel with the increase of life expectancy at birth. There's, there's no reason that it shouldn't. And uh, I think in many ways, people, many people would like to continue working at those ages. They, they don't like to be forced out of the labor market either. Uh, well, John, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Fascinating. All right. Oh, hey, one, one last thing. When will India surpass China as the largest country? <clears throat> well, um, our current projection is that it's going to take about seven more years, that it's, um, it's getting close. Okay. Uh, but it, uh, the current projection has it happening in 2024. But, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's maybe our best guess, but there's quite a bit of uncertainty around that. Um, but, you know, as a, as a rough estimate, we think probably sometime in the next decade, it's, it's going to happen. All right. Well, great. Thank you. This is fascinating. All right. All right. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to John. That was fascinating. Good conversation. Good stuff. Um, as always, if you want to get in touch with me, if you have an idea for a topic you want me to cover, an individual you want me to interview, or if there's anything on your mind, if you have a question for me, just send me an email. You can you do so via globaldispatchespodcast.com. There's a little contact button. I do love hearing from you. Seriously, I, I, I do this for you. I love hearing from you. And if you are so inspired, please become a premium podcast subscriber. It helps support the show and you get lots of great bonuses for being a premium subscriber, including complimentary access to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service, which I send to you every single weekday morning. It's a must-read roundup of the most important news of the day from around the world. So thank you in advance for being a premium subscriber. Thank you for being a listener, and I'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.